0: Who's typing like a madman? Oh, that's me, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>
1: Trying out all those sweet, sweet keyboard shortcuts. That's what he's doing.
2: Um, you know, yeah. this is this is the problem with Slack. Slack can come in at any time. Sometimes. Sure.
0: So hey everybody, welcome to episode one hundred and ninety of More Than Just Code podcast. My name is Tim Mitchell and I am in Toronto, Ontario, and I'm joined once again by Jaime Lopez Jr. in Seattle, Washington. How's it going? I'm also joined by Mark Rubin down in San Jose, California. Hello. Alrighty. So we just have a quick little uh, ask, sort of ask MTJC or an MTJC follow up um, on Twitter. Victoria Herrick who says, wait, a little house trivia. I'll gladly go toe to toe with you, and you won't win. So I'm not taking on that challenge. I said last week I, I wouldn't be able to handle handle it, but uh Yeah, we've
2: already exhausted all of the Little House trivia that I know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it was a TV show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe she she wants to take on Joe. Yeah, maybe. uh, Who who tweeted us last week, so. That may be the case. Well, good luck to you, Joe. Um, All right, so. um, Next one is, uh, Greg, uh, give us some follow-up. Sort of follow-up, sort of ask MTJC. We were talking about the YouTube monetization rules. We were talking about the tragic death of people at YouTube and uh, what caused it, and it was Apparently, that YouTube had said they weren't going to support the uh, the woman who decided, did the shooting. I think she, she took her own life, if I'm not mistaken. But yes, Greg did post here that uh, he found, and I think Jaime replied as well that um, the the new threshold is you have to have four thousand hours of watch time over the past twelve months, and as well, oh, the old rule was ten thousand views. Was oh, this an update? I'm not, I'm not following this. Jaime, Do you want, you know yeah. Coming? So
1: I struggled my best to come up with like vaguely remember as the requirements that Facebook had updated. Sorry, YouTube had updated. And uh, it wasn't the old rule of 10,000 video views, which is probably all time, but more of a difficult sliding window of 4,000 hours of watch time over the last 12 months. So That's you would have to be... Popular, right? Yeah, remain popular. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Right, right. And I guess she mustn't have fallen
2: under that. Um... And, and keep people watching for a reasonable amount of time. You could have 10,000 video views that were, you know, two seconds long a piece because you have some crap yeah, up there. right. And and, uh, and that wouldn't get you to the minimum amount of watch time. Right,
0: right. Cool. All right, another piece of follow-up here. We were talking about last week or two weeks ago, I think, about IBM Watson and Apple's Im- implementation. Well, so uh, spoilers for the rest of the show, but we're I was in the um, machine learning uh, workshop at uh, RWDevCon, and Audrey mentioned that, uh, or she gave a, so had a slide on the screen that showed that, um, in fact, when you're using IBM's Watson uh, with a core ML model, um, the API API actually sends back uh, data back to IBM Watson. So it does, in fact, update your core ML model on the fly, which is kind of cool. So we were wondering about, like, how would they, would you have to re-download you know re-download it or whatever? But apparently that's that's one of the cool things about using IBM Watson is, is that as you're using the app, it's also learning and then updating your core ML library, which is kind of cool.
1: Interesting. And so I've got to learn huh? more about that because I just assumed it was bare bones, train, download the model, have some sort of, you know, collect your analytics, send it back. Back up to retrain, redownload, and then keep going on the cycle.
0: Yeah, this one sounds more like a feedback loop, right? Like, uh, like yeah, go- going back th- up.
2: There are some types of models that you can update in real time. Yes, you know, more like Bayesian type models, as opposed to training the whole thing at once with just an enormous amount of data. Uh, some other kinds of models you can you can have them constantly updating. I, I, did, right, right. I didn't know that Bermo supported those, but it's great that it does. Well,
0: and this may, and of course, this is IBM and Apple working together. So you know yeah. they've probably. We made some special hooks or whatever for that kind of thing, right? That maybe that'll come out in WWDC. Who knows? Yeah, maybe. I won't be there to find out. I will let you know. <laughs> I'll be watching on the video. You'll be there all for right.
2: uh, AltConf, though, right? Uh,
0: Wait, no, sorry. no, but no, no, I won't. But uh, but I'll be I'll be uh, watching the videos as they come out. You know, as I do every year. So, mm-hmm. all right. So, Jaime, you got something here?
1: Yeah. This this is a follow up that itself has follow up. So way back long ago, you may remember us talking about Twitter changing its API rules where they sort of had the preferred quadrants of, hey, if you're something like a Twitterrific or any other sort of Twitter client, we kind of don't want you to hang around, so we're going to limit how many users you can have, and we'll grandfather some folks in. Um, but the sort of the writing was on the wall that Twitter didn't want anything other than the official client to be around them. Um, it's taken longer than I had thought it would, but uh, this post, appsofafeather.com, by the presumed folks from Talon, Tweetbot, Tweetings, and Twitterrific, are very concerned because as of the time that this blog post was written and Twitter had said like, hey, after June 19th, 2018, streaming services at Twitter will be removed. Uh, This means two things for third-party apps that you won't get push notifications for activity on Twitter and timelines won't refresh automatically. So basically we'll have a very not happy experience with those. And so the, uh, the request from these folks was to use hashtag breaking my Twitter. And I definitely saw tons of people tweeting about this. And then maybe a few hours later, there's this article on The Verge where um, there's been an update from Twitter where they're still going to do what they said they were going to do, but they uh, apparently won't deprecate those services on June 19th. It's still TBD as to when exactly that will happen, but that Twitter's uh, developer relations will provide at least 90 days notice for when the the new account activity API becomes generally available Hmm. to when these changes will go into place.
0: Yeah, this is really weird because, I mean, like, the Twitter app has also gone away, the Mac app, right? Um, We we hadn't talked about that, but it's Kind of weird that they're making all these changes. What do you think? What do you suppose it's about? Ads. Oh, uh-huh. oh, because if you go to a third party, you can skip out the ads, right?
1: Yep. Yeah. Uh, I, I guess I don't fully understand part of that because I never understood why, you know, from a personality perspective, why Twitter wouldn't just like dangle your API key in front of you and be like, "Look, you got to show the ads, and if you don't, we'll just cut you off at some random time." Like if you wanted to ensure, by by rule of, of, of force, that uh, that they had to show ads. Mm.
0: But it, but it could be like a metrics thing because they can't. They mo- have to. They monetize by you know the eyeballs looking at the ads, right? And if they send it off to a third party, how can they be guaranteed, or how can the adv- advertisers be guaranteed that those were actual views? Yeah,
1: I, I, I think you're you're both right that it probably is around ads and views, and you know, I,
2: it also takes manpower to maintain the, the SDK or the API rather. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And if they're not getting paid for it, why would they? Yeah. Exactly. So I mean, yeah. the uh, but again, it, it doesn't explain why the Mac app went away. Maybe it was just that low adoption. Or people just weren't using it. What do you think? About the, or it was just hard to do?
2: Oh, I I guess. Although you know, I don't know for sure, but I but I would guess that it's just a matter of uh, we've got you know X numbers of users u- using it on the web on the Mac and a much smaller number of users using a client uh, app, a native app. So why don't we just have them have everyone use the web and you know cut down on our development cost? Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Costs. i I'm sure, I guess iOS is probably or iOS and Android are probably the two most popular. Ways Used to get it these days, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, think, I think it's really, I don't know, like maybe I come from a very particular perspective because, you know, years ago when, when Twitter made that uh, Rules of the Road, I think blog post it was, where they, yeah yeah you know, they, they said, hey, you shouldn't do this anymore. I switched over to the official Twitter client because I felt like, well, you know, it's not as good as these other ones, but at least I know it'll do everything that Twitter offers um, and that it won't be a second class citizen. And so this whole time, for however many years that's been i've been using it and yeah like i'm I'm sure there are very nice things about twitter effect and tweet bot and all these other bits but um, even though they had nice you know features that had usability aspects they were always in my humble opinion really broken experiences like you would tweet with someone they'd be like oh what i can't see that it's like oh you don't you don't see the special star wars emoji you don't get Uh multi-party direct messages like you've not been part of this conversation the whole time (laughs) we thought you just weren't commenting like and so on and so forth forth right like twitter like clearly did not want to invest anything in that for a long time so I always found it weird that people were jumping on to these third-party clients when in my mind the, the writing was on the wall like, look they don't want you to develop this they apparently believe the pr is too bad to immediately cut it off so they're waiting till three four six however many years later it is um very very odd
0: yeah and i suppose from their perspective it was like the not but not the best experience but uh... yeah
2: yeah you know when i somewhat cynically say ads is the is the real Reason. I, I still believe that's the dominant reason, but there probably is a second... I'll give them some credit and say there's a secondary reason that they want to make sure that there's a quality experience for their users. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and I'll be honest with you. Look, I mean, um, I, I, it's funny how the ads work on Twitter because I do actually look at them and kind of go, oh, that's interesting, and then I notice, oh, it's promoted. You know, I mean, sometimes I follow them, and you know, today there was like... Ironically, there was one for the, the Stanley Cup playoffs starts today, and there was a uh, one if you get a free insurance quote from this company. Company in Waterloo, you get uh, you know entered into this contest, and, that, and then I noticed it was a promoted one, right? But I just thought it was some you know somebody just tagging on to the, the playoffs thing. I, I don't know if you guys what it's like for you guys down there, but they released the uh, playoff tickets to the Leaf fans um, this week or this just the other day, I guess. And there was like ninety tickets available for for like the public because they'd all been grabbed up by season ticket holders and various
2: other wait did Maple Leafs make the playoffs this year? <laughs> Yeah, yeah wow. they did
0: apparently I don't know I haven't been following hockey much this, these days but but uh wow that is that's a big that's that in itself is, we should have led with that that should have been the, the main story but no my point was that there was only <laughs> like out of out of 20,000 seats or 30,000 seats or whatever it is like there there only 90 tickets were available like does, doesn't it strike you as a sort of an odd imbalance you know yeah anyway whatever I got to see the last least play in the playoffs once like I don't know 10 years ago very exciting hmm. um yeah, anyway let's move on uh um,
1: uh, so, another one hi from you yeah very quick uh continuing the tradition of, of having the product red phones that help uh fund the fight against hiv and aids apple has added a special edition product red for the iphone 8 and 8 plus they look really spiffy and they really learned from last year's complaints so instead of having a uh, a white panel on front it's a black panel on the front uh, it still continues to be a very luscious looking red uh, on the back the glass back for these devices right
0: yeah yeah that's, that's carol's favorite color red too um just Let's have a sidebar for a second. So, so another thing we didn't talk about. And I'm just curious though whether there was any other products announced recently, officially or unofficially or whatever. But um, I was having a discussion with a couple of guys on Twitter yesterday about the multi-core Mac Pros coming out, like with eight apparently eight and twelve cores. You guys are aware of those coming, right?
2: In 2019,
0: right? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but there was a discussion about Xcode compiling. You know, whether it would be better to have you was know, it twenty. Or, yeah, 20 cores and 12 cores. Is that what's coming out? Do you guys know? Because currently there's eight, right, in the Mac Pro.
1: Yeah, I haven't seen any stats. On this, so I'm definitely in in the dark around specifics other than Mac Pro 2019. Yeah.
0: So what I remember from the when the multi cores first came out in the in the cheese grater Max was that um, an application had to be written to take advantage of multi cores In other words, like things like Photoshop and video editing applications that would have either a plug-in or or were designed to use multiple cores. Um, otherwise, otherwise, whatever app you're running would use a single core, right? Or a single thread. Not maybe not thread, but single core. Um, but well,
2: um, oh, it is. It is tied to thread. So, so essentially, GCD enables using multiple cores automatically. Now, right. So, came out, but that might have been before GCD, right?
0: Right. Yeah. No, it definitely was. Yeah. Because I was back when I was a reseller. Um. But yeah. the so so I did a little bit of looking around, and and I noticed that you know like some some people had noted that if you were compiling Objective C and you had a precompiled header, you had to, you had to wait for that precompiled header to be fully compiled before the rest the compilation would start on the other parts of the app yep. and I also read somewhere else that um, in the case of Swift you basically can compile one Swift class at a time So in other words if you had an eight core machine theoretically you could you could do eight um, eight. Classes at a time. But the, and and if you remember, we had that LinkedIn um, article we talked about last year where they talked about, they did a comparison between a MacBook Pro, a Mac Mini, a a Mac Pro with multiple cores. And it was the multiple core was actually slower at compiling than a Mac Mini. Remember that? Yeah.
2: There was a while when Xcode was only running on a single thread for whatever reason. Right, right, right. Uh, right. I believe that's not the case anymore. Uh, Yeah. But certain things, for sure, are going to be limited. Like um, a storyboard, for example. If you just have one big storyboard, it's yeah. a big, it's one big XML file, right? So right, right. So it's kind of hard to split that up amongst multiple cores. Uh, so you have to wait for that for it to process that one file all on a single thread. Uh, so that won't be helped. But if it's broken up into multiple storyboards, then in theory, Xcode could process them on multiple threads. So so that oh, would that's be helped. True, yeah. uh, uh, if you do if you have a lot of files to compile that's something that very easily can be can be done uh on multiple multiple threads so kind it kind of depends on on the on on the nature of your application in in many
0: ways right well Jean Goikma, who was having conversation with me about this on twitter uh finished off my discussion with him by saying that nine point three is supposed to have to paralyze swift builds better than uh previous ones, but you know we'll mm-hmm. have to sort of mm-hmm. wait and see until we can get our hands on or somebody
2: can get their hands on a machine and try it out right so yeah. Yeah. I mean, Swift does have this weird thing of, of, you know, every module, sorry, every file in, in the module is aware of all the other files. Right. Right. Uh, so, so every, you know, every class knows about every other class. So there's no concept of importing or forward references or something like that, that are kind of hints to the compiler about what's going on without having to actually go through all the work before that. So I don't know how Swift handles that. Uh, they must have a way because, because in other words, uh, So in Objective-C, or C in general, when you had these forward references uh, in your header file, if you reference another class that hasn't been compiled yet, because you have a header file and a forward reference there, you know what the interface to that class is without it having compiled that class. So you can do them independently. But in Mm -hmm. Swift, you don't have that in an obvious way. Uh, So, yeah, so like I said, I don't know how it handles it under the hood. It must handle it in some way, Hmm. but I don't know how it does. Does that make sense, what I was saying? Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, Yeah, there's some things that i i constantly wonder oh, this, we're going through the migration to swift 4.1 and xcode 9.3 and there's just some weird things that we've been doing um compilation time tests and we've got some solutions for some of the the hot spots but we're all wondering like wait is is this particular to this version of swift or is this some sort of limit on the state of the art for compilers in general and since swift changes so dramatically from <laughs> version to version it's a little hard to tell
0: but i do recall there being some some optimizations come it was, was was it, uh, in the latest um, Swift 4? Um, oh, I think I'm thinking of the fact that Swift would be able to cache the builds better. Or sorry, uh, Xcode would cache the builds better for Swift classes. Remember how Swift classes were really slow in three and so forth. I mean, 3, Swift compiling in general was really slow. Mm-hmm. And that uh, I think last year they came up with a way of kind of um, like a pre-compiled header. They would they would, um, they would would compile parts of the app and then so on subsequent you know builds, it would remember that you had already built a particular file if you hadn't modified it, right? And it would just use the cached version. Do you not remember that?
1: Yes, I do remember us talking about that. That does sound familiar.
0: It's a new feature last year at WWDC, but I don't think I've ever sort of really noticed it, but uh, anywho, well, I'll have to keep an eye on it. Just literally just in um, about an hour ago, an hour and a half ago, I guess, um, Bloomberg announced, uh, posted an article that Apple has lowered the HomePod forecast because I guess the sales are not quite where they expected them to be. Mm. Uh, Again, this this is just Bloomberg. Who knows where they get their information from and uh, what they're saying, what they're speculating on. But um, I think they basically said that the pre-orders were good, um, but uh, they really haven't been flying off the shelves, I guess, right?
2: Yikes, selling fewer than 10 HomePods a day.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: I, I, I interpret that to mean it. At, at Apple store locations, not, not 10, 10 nationwide dollar, or whatever. Uh, <laughs>
2: uh, Apple store. Yeah.
1: Okay. <laughs> well, I <laughs> there's just like one Apple store that's really good at selling them, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, everybody I know who's got, who grabbed them, like, I guess there were a lot of early adopters, but those who did said
1: they're great. Right. Jaime, you like yours, right? Yeah. And and I think that's the thing though, right? It's, it's early adopters, people who, who love this sort of thing and, and have a, a strong interest, but let's be honest, it's an Expensive product, like, and that yeah, was always the yeah. case compared to its competitors. Um, I, I love the way it sounds; it's definitely worth the money. But you know, when you're checking the list prices, it's definitely more expensive. And it's also a half baked project, right? Like they dramatically cut scope to get this thing out the door. And we were talking about just last week, like, oh, if you thought AirPlay Two is going to be in iOS 11.3, nope, it's not. Right, right, yeah. It's in 11.4 beta. Hopefully, it makes it before you know iOS 12 comes out. But uh, it definitely has not had the best start. But doesn't mean necessarily anything for longer term but i think it means in my mind like they really need to reinvigorate that story come wwz keynote time or with some sort of a follow-on product that's like all right we don't want the 350 model would you like a 200 dollars model that's
2: you know still just as good but you know not quite as expensive when did this model come out i forget was it before the holidays last year
1: the home pod was scheduled to come out in december of 2017 yeah. it didn't come out till february i can't uh, okay. remember how yeah, long i've had some it. Some february or early march
0: yeah. Not that long ago, like four or five episodes ago. (laughs) Um, You guys have seen the the, uh, lecture by Simon Sinek uh, on his book, Start With Why, where he draws a curve and it's like a bell curve. And he says like the first, you know, five or 10% are the early adopters or the people who really, you know, make the the initial slope of the curve really sharp and steep, like the hockey stick curve, right? And then there's that hump where, you know, you get the the majority of people are uh, at the top of the bell curve. And I don't think we've got there yet where, where the HomePod becomes... You know, um, something that everybody gets, like, you know, everybody has to have one and that kind of stuff. Kind of like the Google, uh, home devices did over the Christmas holidays, right? Or the holidays, um, uh, and Lexus as well, right? Or the, pretty do cool, No, Echo. Um, mm-hmm. you know, they've kind of become, everybody kind of has one now. And, and, you know, the late adopters are on the other side of the bell curve are the people who are still using flip phones and stuff like that, right? That takes a long time for those people to get them. But so I think the home pod is still in that early sort of uh, slope of, of, of early adopters, where you know we we'll, we get them because we like Apple stuff and they're shiny and you know so on and so forth, right? Um, but you know until the until it reaches the sort of middle ground of, of you know the the main public, the ones that aren't necessarily Apple Apple fans per se, right? Um, that's where the HomePod will start to to either it, either it'll get there or it won't. I mean, you know, um, Apple's had lots of boomboxes in the past that are, that are no longer around, and you know they've had their share of road apples, as it were, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, this is really not. Not unexpected, I guess. I mean, you know, if for like everything else, every new product has a, a burst at the beginning, and yeah. if it's if it's a, a big hit, then it just keeps going. But otherwise, it drops off, and people wait around for product number two. So yeah, that's yeah. probably all that's happening here. Sure, sure. It's, yeah, it's uh, it's unfortunate if Apple uh, overestimated the demand and now are stuck with a bunch of hardware that uh, or inventory that that they can't sell. But you know, if they did, well, that's <laughs> that's their fault. When they yeah. start
1: passing about to. WWDC attendees. Yeah. Yeah, look under
2: under your seat, yeah.
1: (laughs) Or they have to drop the price if they want to get rid of it. True. So that's an interesting one. So I think uh, this might end up being like the Apple Watch. Kind of a slow burn, getting off the ground. Pretty, you know, pretty decent success. I wouldn't call it a huge success. It's not, you know, nothing is iPhone. Um, It's not even iPad. But it it really seemed to, to turn the corner around the time Series 2 came out. And not because of Series 2, but because they came out with Series one that was like, hey, it's 269 Oh, oh, you, you dropped off $80. That's, that started to become reasonable. It feels like that was a time when people really started to, to wear them beyond the early adopters.
0: Yeah. You know, I, the thing about, the thing about the, I, I mean, I know you use the iPhone analogy there, but, and, and I know that the iPhone initially, and Mark, you'll back me up on this back in 2007, 2008, you know, initially it was seen, it was, you know, it was called the Jesus phone and it was like, you know, everybody was like, there was a lot of buzz around it, but not a, a lot of people bought them. I mean, initially, right? People still had Blackberries. They still had Nokia's. They still, you know, had flip phones and Motorola's and so on and so forth. And it was because I mean, I I was looking around to see who was using these things, and and I mean, I don't know, it was like California, but here in Canada, it was like a long time before. It was a long time. I remember the first iPhone I saw, you know, um, and you know, but it took a long time before people started using them regularly, right? And then, well, they were hard then to find it, back then. That's true. Remember, I, so.
2: I remember when I bought my first iPhone iPhone, which was a 3G, so it's the second model. Right. Uh, I remember saying to myself, "I think I'll get an iPhone." So I went to the Apple Store, not even thinking about it, and finding out that no, they didn't have any in stock, and uh, they had no idea when they were going to get any in, and there was already a waiting list, and it was like that everywhere. It turned out. So there were websites at the time where you could go, and and they would have like real time updates that this Apple Store has has this model in stock, and you know, if right, you were right. lucky, you could get down there in time to buy one before they got sold out so so the the supply was I don't know if it was intentionally kept low or, or if they just Apple just underestimated the demand it was it was just Maybe. Really, really hard finding them at the time
0: but, but was that was that like when the when the 3G had just gotten released because because initially they were always they were always scarce the new models were always scarce when they yeah. came out that was true of any Mac product right yeah
2: yeah um, but it is true what you're saying that you know back then the the world was dominated by blackberry and even Windows Phone back then I, mean, yeah, I remember yeah. some of my my HCC, uh, yeah my Windows phone phone friends kind of laughing about, oh, this new iPhone, what a fad that is. And, you know, Windows yep. Phone is the real device. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I use it with my Zoom. Yeah, exactly. yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, there were even phones that had iTunes support in them. Like a, a friend of mine had a Motorola that was just like a like a little tiny screen and it apparently had ability to have iTunes. Or it was like an iPod, you know, it, it wasn't an iPod branded, but it had the ability to have MP3s in it and stuff like that. Right. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, it, it wasn't, my point is that it wasn't, it, it didn't take, it wasn't that it wasn't in demand. It was in demand, but it took a long time before it became ubiquitous. Before that, you know, the middle ground people that weren't necessarily, you know, the ones that don't have Apple t- tattoos on their arm, right? Yeah. That would start buying these things. When your mom would buy an iPhone, an iPhone, you know, yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah you know? it, for sure. I mean, it, it, there, you know, there was a time, even when I was, when I was developing, like back in, you know, like 2010, where you would try to find for some third-party library, try to find the iOS SDK or the iOS right, API, yeah. and it just didn't exist. You know, you had to take these, you know, a uh, uh, web API and, and wrap it in some, you know, something that you built by hand to make it work. Uh, so, yeah, for sure, there was there was definitely not support for for the iPhone for a while after that. And then it, then it kind of changed. Uh, and it must have been, you know, a year or two after that, that there was some kind of a inflection point where all of a sudden people were developing for, uh, for or the iPhone first, and, and then, you know, then everything else... After.
0: Sure, and like I said, when I joined the bank, I was actually surprised to see. You know, when I go to meetups and stuff like that, you know, there'd be like twenty of us in the room with with Apple watches on. And when I when I joined the bank, I was actually surprised to see how many people actually had Apple watches. A lot of people still had at that point in time, you know, the the big round what was that Moto watch or whatever the Android mm-hmm. one, yeah, and the, the Moto three hundred and sixty, yeah, yeah. So so you know, but but you know, you'd see like you know, quite a few people. I mean, maybe 20, 25 percent of the people there had Apple watches, which was amazing. Now it's like everybody's got one, right? So. Um, and that's not quite true, but but the thing is that you know, like you see them a lot, and I I, I kind of notice now when I see someone who doesn't have an Apple Watch on, kind of thing, right? Um, and I think that's kind of I'm not because like, I'm not comparing the the HomePod to the iPod iPhone by any stretch, but you know, I'm, but like Jaime said earlier, it is more like the watch. It's a bit, uh, it's it's going to take a it's it's a slow burn, and and you know, we might it might be uh, HomePod two or HomePod three that actually
2: becomes the the home device that everybody seems to have. Yeah, I, I think cost is a big factor. I mean, the the original iPhone, or or back in the early days, the iPhone cost a couple hundred bucks with the subsidies. Sure, yeah, and it could do a whole lot more than than the HomePod can do. Let's be honest.
0: That's true. Yeah, mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, it was like the internet, a phone, right. and an iPod right. in your pocket, right, <laughs> and you could play games. <laughs> the internet, a phone, and an iPod. Yeah, and you could play. Well, it wasn't couldn't play games on it first, but yeah,
2: well, you could. It just they might not have been that great, but you could still do it
0: in the first internet. Generation? That was a year before Apple let third parties on. They didn't have a snake on there, man.
2: Oh, you're talking about, oh, okay. <laughs> the original iPhone. Yeah, iPhone. Yeah, one. yeah. Yeah,
0: sure. I was mimicking Steve Jobs there. But anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um,
1: so, Jaime, this next one is you, definitely. Yes. So, if you have a HomePod, it's 50% <laughs> less useful uh, if you're not using Apple Music. And that's the next topic, which is uh, this article on The Verge that says Apple Music now has 40 million subscribers and any new boss. Because Jimmy Iovine. Is, is moving on so oh, apple really? music hmm. according to variety uh, has broken the 40 million subscriber mark where back in 2017 uh, september 2017 they had just crossed the 30 million subscribers mark so they're they're moving it quite a clip hmm. really and they yeah? have a, a new hmm. boss in oliver schusser 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 yeah who'll be who will be running that that side of things so they're Uh, Spotify in the intervening time. I don't know that we mentioned that they've uh, IPO'd and, or sorry, they've gone public, I guess. And they have uh, 70 million paid subscribers around the world. Right. But uh, they definitely started with a huge head start. So there's there's definitely advantages to having the, um, you know, built into the platform sort of thing that Apple has. And this is where I'm a strong believer that if if Apple can open up Apple Music even more so in terms of, you know, API access and other things that people can build upon for helping, you know, manage your lists and find music and stuff. I, I think that would be great for developers and that's one of my dark horse things that I want to see at WWDC. I don't, sure, I don't think okay. it's too likely but it would be one that would make sense to me.
0: So this raises two questions. One is about Spotify which just went public, didn't they? They just do their IPO? Yep, Yeah, and so they have 70 million. So they've got a, a head start on Apple in that sense. But I, what do you think about them long term? Do you think Apple will eventually eat their lunch?
2: I don't know enough about mm. their business model.
0: Well, yeah, they're, it's, it's, I think it's very similar to Apple. It's sort of a you pay so much per month sort of the netflix model you know you pay so much per month and you have access to all the tunes right and and but like Kameh said you can make lists and you can have playlists and stuff like that right and you can publish them and so on and so forth right not sure you can do the same thing on
1: apple music and what we're talking about here to be clear is spotify's paid subscribers is 70 million their their overall subscribers is much larger because they do have a free tier and and apple music does not
0: yeah uh, to be honest with you i don't mind see i'm one of these people i don't listen to spotify all the time i know people who have it on their their devices and they run it all day long like a radio kind of thing but for me I don't mind listening to the odd album here and there and or you know part of a play mix just to listen to ads or whatever because I, I don't use it that often so I've never really sort of bit the bullet and got a subscription right and and they're comparable in terms of pricing right like I think they're they're roughly pretty the same. pretty close
1: it, yeah. it's like 999 us for Apple music month and then the, I think it's around the same for for Spotify yeah, premium yeah
0: the other side of the question for me is I'm looking at this number 40 million what is 300 million million of you U.S. guys down there south of me, right? Roughly, mm-hmm. yeah. Like 40 million would be a big number in Canada, but it's not so big in the United States in
1: the grand scheme of things, right? It's like ten, a little bit over 10%.
2: Yeah, 10% of the whole country is still a pretty big number. You think? Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah that's that's pretty popular for something in the United States. Um, I mean, you, So you'd asked a question about longer term. I, I was sort of on the downside of, of belief in, in Spotify. I mean, I, I think they will have to pivot some of their business because right now they basically are completely beholden to the content providers, right? The the labels. So this is sort of like where Netflix was a few years ago when they didn't produce any of their own stuff and completely beholden right, like, to yeah. the the TV and, and movie studios. And Netflix, rightfully so, learned from that and created its own stuff. I, I think Spotify maybe could try that by building its own independent label and becoming less dependent, but I think the, the style of consumption for music versus video content is, is so different that I, I don't feel very strongly that it will succeed so then it becomes a race to the bottom of hey you know what virgin records wants 20 percent more of a cut apple's like sure why not like like we we try to make some money on apple music but we're basically using it as a way to sell iphones and Spotify's like oh oh are we less profitable now that's a terrible place to be
0: yeah yeah so you can do video on apple music as well do you know
1: yes so weirdly they do have video content like carpool karaoke and yeah well, strombo Stromb- does a show on apple music right so
0: oh, Oh, I didn't know that. Yes, yeah, the House of Strumbo has a show on Apple Music. They've had like eight like eight a episodes.
1: video, to be clear, video or like an audio. Yeah, like video. A yeah, station. yeah. So,
0: so like you know, if you go see like you know, the, I think the they've done eight episodes or more. I think uh, like they did a season of episodes um, last year. Those shows that I went to, with their had house that were taped. They were they were in there, um, but I don't have an Apple Music account, so I really can't check. But um, but I'm looking here at this last paragraph in this this article, which we'll have in the show notes, um, says that Apple is on pace to top Spotify in the U.S. by this summer, based on their growth. So um, Apple's growing at 5% per month, where Spotify is only 2% per month. So it does look like uh, Spotify is um, going to have a bit of a challenge coming coming very soon, right?
1: Yeah. I, I do wonder, that was a really weird way to to sort of slice the data where, I mean, Spotify originating in Europe, it probably has a, a home field advantage there. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. And I, and I guess when they came to the U.S., you know, they were certainly fans. I saw them posting stuff on Facebook or automatically posting stuff to To grow the the Spotify brand, but it sure, yeah, it doesn't seem to have taken root here. Probably because there's no sort of like national pride in it, or it doesn't quite reach the American audience, you know, as effectively as it does the European audience.
0: Yeah, funny, and, and there are other services like this around. Like, um, I got a couple of them through my cable provider, um, and I think one of them through my wireless provider too. So Rogers, that kind of stuff, right? Where there's, uh, I guess I'm in Rogers both in both cases. But uh, there are some free music services that they're putting out there. But uh, you know, I, if if you ask me about music services, I would think Spotify and and Apple would come out number one and two, and then maybe Pandora would be number three, right? So mm-hmm. there's also enjoy. Amazon Music, Amazon, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. <coughs> Google has Prime, their own. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But Google has been too, right? Okay,
1: they do. Yeah, that, that's where I, I, sort of struggle to think like, how can somebody who only you know streams music like a Spotify and they don't own their own content, how can they live long term when they have everybody with super deep pockets? Yeah, that is attacking them from all angles. Like, it, I think it can be done, but they will have to be
2: brilliant at it. Either, yeah, semi pivoting to... away as a loss leader essentially, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, and if if you're depending on it for your entire revenue stream, you're kind of kind of in trouble. Cool.
0: All right. Well, one last thing. We uh, I forgot to mention this in the um, our paces in the, when we were doing our follow up. But uh, Konstantin Martinov um, posted about. Uh, we were, I think we talked about HTTP 400 and 401. Uh, he said just says 400 is a bad request and yep. uh, HTTP 401 is an unauthorized request or you're unauthorized. Yeah,
2: and, I think I had said that uh, I was getting a 400 and thought it might have been an unauthorized. But I sure remember. yeah looked it up right after the podcast, of course, but. By then it was too late. Yeah,
0: and he, his last comment was it's also the name of a famously crappy highway. I think he's referring to the 401 here in, in Ontario, unless there's a 401 mm-hmm. down in the state somewhere. But I also pointed out the 400 is also equally bad because it's just as bad. It runs north-south
2: as opposed to east-west. Um, yeah, so thanks for that. Yeah, as far as I know, yeah. we don't have any 401s down here because it doesn't fit with the interstate numbering scheme very well. No? Nope, nope. Yeah, we have a
0: 400 series, which basically means it's uh, a large, like, large number of lanes, I think four lanes at least, and uh, and big and fast
2: and wide. But, mm. uh, yeah. So. so, I think we talked about this before, but the the interstates here, the last number determines whether it's north-south or east-west roughly. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Yeah, but so, odd the odd even, ones are north-south north, and the even ones are east-west. So, so, that's like, so you got I-5 all the way through, I-95 are the north-south highways as you go across the country from California to, to the east coast, and you know, 10, 20, 30, all the way up to 90 are the East, the main East West interstates going from the South to the North. Uh, but then the ones with an extra digit in front, like a four or a one or, or an eight, uh, are, they mean different things. Like a four is a, is a, is a freeway that comes off of a main interstate, but is a bypass around the city. So like you, like the four hundred five in LA is, is the bypass that goes around downtown LA. And I, 5 is the one that kind of goes straight through downtown LA.
1: So let me bring up how that can cause confusion, because I have friends uh, who live in LA, and when they came up here and we were driving around, yep. they were driving on the I-5, you know, and it goes through Seattle, yep. and then they saw a sound like, oh, you have a 405 too? I'm like, yep, right. it right. bypasses Seattle, goes through Bellevue, around the lake, and comes back
2: on to intersect with the I-5. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so It's just a loop around 405s, the lake. There's many, on the East Coast, there's many 495s, all over, pretty much every big city that the, the main interstate goes through will have its own for something.
1: So welcome
0: to the Californians. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Bring it back to uh, HTTP codes. Yeah. Uh, as long as we we're talking about the 400 series, there is, uh, I believe, official support now for 418, 418, I'm yeah. a teapot, where <laughs> is the error response code that indicates that the server refuses to brew coffee because it is a teapot. This error oh. is a reference of hypertext coffee pot protocol, uh, which was an April Fool's joke in 1998. We'll, we'll ah. have that linked in the show notes for those of you driving at home. Look at the uh, mozilla.org website. Alrighty,
0: okay. Hmm. Alright, let's move on to some main stuff. So what do you got here, Jaime? You got something from Apple again?
1: Yes, I have not seen this occurring because as we're doing this, it is just before April 12th in in my time zone. But apparently, starting at midnight, April 12th, 2018, in the user's local time zone, it will see the following message the first time they launch an app that only supports 32-bit in macOS High Sierra 10.13.4. And it says, quote, this app needs to be updated by its developer to improve compatibility. So if nice. you remember how we talked about this for the 32-bit to 64-bit transition for iOS, sure. yep. uh, iOS 11, you're going to see the same thing on macOS. The famous shaming, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, the developer shaming. So yep. uh, start getting ready for that. Wow.
0: Yeah, it's funny. I, I just noticed today on my iPad, I still have one app that is uh, 32-bit, but it's got a bunch of data in it. And the, again, I don't know if anybody realizes this is at home, uh, driving at home. If you want to get the add the data off of that, you can use iTunes to go in and grab the files, but uh, if you use, you know, the iTunes, I forget what they call it, that sort of drive I, I, iTunes well, transfer only, or whatever. Only
2: if, only if it's got the file sharing entitlement.
0: Yeah, 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 I think well, this this app did, right? Because so, okay. it used to have a, a, what do you call those um, uh, what was that, web something or other service where you could set it up as a, as a sort of um, network service when you had it running, and you could, um, oh, web dev I think it was called, right? Um, where you could basically if you're running the app, you could hit it by it's a HTTP address to your to your um, iPad, and you can copy and um, pick up files on there like an FTP server kind of thing. But yeah, well, that's that's good. Looking more, looking forward to more apps not being able to use, being used on my Mac. Great. I wonder if uh, CS6 has 32-bit code in it.
1: Well, if you want to know <laughs> what the damage is, this uh, Rs technical article does a very helpful job. So if you go to the Apple logo in the top left corner of your screen, click about yeah. this Mac, yeah, then you know, assuming you're running 1013.4, hit the system report. Oh. go into software applications and then sort the list by 64 bit intel no means the app is 32 bit and needs to be updated right and boy oh boy do i have a whole bunch
0: are you running uh, that version of uh, Sierra Let's see what I'm running. I'm on th- uh,
1: 13.3. Let's see for giggles and grins here. What, what what have I got? That's the polite way of saying that. I don't even I don't even know what a lot of these are. A lot of these look like junk I should remove from my system. I'm glad to see these 32-bit things go away. How about that? That's my hot take. <laughs> Get rid of the <laughs> bloat, bloat. Bloat, yeah. Yeah, what, what is this stuff? I don't even know what this is. Must Stop. be like... Oh, oh like... uh Bloatware. Huh. You know what it's showing here, me here? It's showing me some things that are um, uh, Xcode projects that I downloaded, like uh, Instagram Kits or MG oh, Tile right. Menu and, and other things that I've not done. But hmm. hello, here is GarageBand. Really? <laughs> <laughs> That's a teapot calling the kettle black, if you ask me. <laughs> Maybe you should update that one to 32 bit, 64 bit. All right.
0: Well, speaking of blasts from the past, what about uh, this next one here, Jaime?
1: Huh, yeah, as long as you like reliving the the 19- 1990s, apparently, Microsoft has open sourced their file manager. So nice. on uh, on Windows 10, you can you can install that thing and and live life like we used to back in Windows like three or three point one. I think this interface looks like um, they've got the uh, source code under the oh, it's under the MIT source license, so you can do with it as you please.
0: Is this a, this? Yeah, this is the Windows Explorer, right? Or is it?
1: it eventually of... became or morphed into Windows Explorer. I think I don't know if that's quite accurate, yeah. uh, but at least from like from a tech Technical standpoint, but certainly from a user standpoint, you used to use the Windows File Manager, and then Explorer, uh, Windows Explorer, took over that role.
0: Yeah, I remember the um, the Windows NT had something like this too, right? Back in the day, very similar. So that would have been that would have been yeah, that would have been nineties. And I think about it, yeah, late night or mid nineties, I guess. Interesting stuff. Cool. Yeah. Oh, the horror! (laughs) Yeah.
2: Well, I've got a bunch of uh, Microsoft Office stuff that's all thirty two bit on my machine.
0: Oh, mine just loaded. Um, So you said you have to be running. Uh, you have to be running uh, 10134, right?
2: Yes, I believe yes. that is
1: the latest version of High Sierra. Yeah, I've
0: got 10133, and it doesn't show me. Uh, it shows me versions. It doesn't show me whether anything's 32 bits per se. Yeah,
1: you don't have the 64-bit parenthesis Intel column no. on yours. No. no. So I, haven't okay. updated.
0: I haven't updated uh, in, in weeks. So yeah, I there's, app- there's a pending update, but I haven't really paid attention to it.
2: I have an application cool. called Welcome to Leopard from Apple on my machine. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Last modified on May 21st, 2009. I had to delete that one.
1: Man, no, you should wait until midnight, get the screenshot, and then tweet Apple support of like, hey, when are you going (laughs) to update this to (laughs) 64-bit? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that'll help. That'll be helpful. <laughs> All right. So, well, next is me and it was basically the I'm uh, centered around I was going to talk about RW DevCon this weekend. Um but uh, Ray thankfully has posted a uh, Ray himself has posted a RW DevCon 2018 postmortem which will give me some talking points. But uh our co-host Tammy Coron, actually did the keynote at RW DevCon uh, and she did a big talk long talk about uh connections and how, you know, uh, as an introvert herself, she's able to to have through connections and uh, become a better, stronger person because of all the people she knows and she can um, gather together with and and make things better, like including this podcast, right? Um, So it was a really good uh, uh, keynote. Um, The the conference, as I think mentioned before in in previous years, it's a hands-on style conference where um, you don't just sit there and listen to people read off slides. You actually go through, they do read off slides, but you go through the uh, tutorials with the the instructor, uh, sort of so sort of like an instructor-led um, uh, bunch of workshops. So on the first day, they had uh, four workshops. They had one on, let me see if I can remember what they all were. One was on uh, machine learning, which is one I went to. There was another one on AR kit. I'm drawing a blank what the other two were. Hmm. Anyway. Oh, I've got my app here. I can look it up. Hang on one sec. Real-time update. Oh, they did a Swift algorithms workshop and that came back a little bit later and, oh, they had a Practical Instruments Workshop, which I kind of am sad I missed. But this year, uh, I don't think they—I don't think they videotaped the um, the workshops in previous years. But I believe this year they they videotaped them. So if you if you were lucky enough to be a member uh, or or an attendee, um, you you may have access to those videos later on uh, when they come available. All of the all of the the talks were uh, videotaped, and I think uh, they'll probably team over at Ray Runner like we'll roll them out over time. Um, So in the in the actual in the conference, they didn't really in previous years they broke it down by you'd have a beginner, intermediate, and advanced uh, track. But this time they didn't seem to do that. They just kind of had enough content for uh, advanced people as well as intermediate and beginner um, in each section. So there was all kinds of different things. There was switch serialization. I really enjoyed the the test-driven development one by I'm um, um, drawing a blank now Andy um, and uh, yeah it was, it was a good time we had a um, on our sort of game, fun and games night we had uh, James Dempsey hosted a RW trivia uh, contest where they broke us up into groups and we went through and answered questions on uh, various you know Apple and iOS related things that were like Swift um, examples and we had to answer whether they would compile or not and if, they, if, if not why not that kind of thing um, so anyway there's a link here in the show notes for the post-mortem article by Ray... and it talks about all the uh, lots of you know feedback from the attendees. Uh, basically, it got four out of like four point five, around roughly four and a half stars in terms of its uh, overall feedback. So really good feedback from that. Um, if you attended, you got like a five hundred page conference book, which had all of the materials from all the lectures. So if, or, or, or sorry, all the sessions. So if you missed a session, you could always go back and uh, you can go back through and, and do it yourself. Um, and I believe like in previous years, they've made um, the the Whole vault available um, later on, so um, that may or may not be true. Don't quote me on that, but uh, stay tuned if you're interested in that. But um, yeah, keep your eye on the site; they will uh, publish inspiration talks and as well as um, tutorials over time. Any questions?
1: Yeah, I've got some that are okay related to
0: the books, right? So they... Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot about the special surprise thing at the end of it. So Calvin and who's from uh, Vancouver, Canada, and uh, uh, Vincent—they they're the two authors. They're the they're, they're the guys that run the Um, The algorithm uh, group on GitHub that uh, they maintain for Ray Wunderlich and um, they did the workshop at the beginning of the week or the beginning of the conference on um, Swift algorithms but they also, surprise surprise, they published a book called Data Structure as an Algorithms in Swift uh, for the attendees and it's a good introduction if you've not done any sort of algorithm stuff. Um, So do you have a question about that Jaime?
1: Well I'm interested in these books, the uh, Swift Data Structures and Algorithms Books and the design patterns by tutorials. Yeah, uh, from a strange perspective, not necessarily for me because I'm I'm fairly comfortable with data structures and algorithms. I'm fairly comfortable with design patterns. Um, definitely am a uh, strong advocate of the idea of people having the design patterns elements of reusable object oriented software by sure. Eric Gamma et Al. Um, copyright 1995. <laughs> um, because it's useful literature, and I've I've used this book a, a few times, just like within the past week for for stuff. Um, sure, it's useful reference, but it's tough, right? Because uh, it's not very it's not very accessible, right? Like, like a
0: reader, I, reader friendly, you mean, or
1: yeah, because uh, again, it was made in 1995, and the patterns still pretty much hold true, right? Like they're they're very classic patterns, but the book itself uses a uh, case study of a document text editor, which is kind of borderline of like do people even really do that anymore? The, you know parsing RTF parsing. XML sort of thing. It uses liberal use of uh, the UML, the Unified Modeling Language, for representing diagrams of how these things interact. And then on top of that, its code samples are in C. So it gives you like every obstacle you could possibly hate if you didn't grow up through any of that era. Right. And I I was sort of at the tail end of, uh, of that era. So at least I got some exposure to, to that world going through, through university around that time. Right. And I think it's nice to have what I believe as I've, you know, sort of asked people questions about this. I believe these are going to be more accessible to folks, particularly if you are starting with something like a Swift and you're not, you know, having to be like, Oh yeah. Do you, do you vaguely remember how virtual functions work? C++. I only sort of do, (laughs) but certainly you're not going to deal with that too much if you, you know, started using Swift in 2014 and that was like your first programming language. So I'm very excited to get my hands uh, on a couple copies of these and then sort of give them the once through. And and hopefully they're the sort of things I can really recommend to more the junior dev side of things um, at the very least. I, I think a lot of senior devs have probably ended up with this content either through direct schooling or maybe just by experience. But I think it's great to have this sort of stuff available there for like, like the new reference book that uh, you know the younger or less experienced developer generation can get into.
0: Yeah, I mean the 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 the, uh, the design pattern book um, starts off with sort of you know, the basic intermedi or basic level um, uh, stuff. Like it it starts off with how to read a class diagram, which is fairly straightforward to a certain extent, right? Um, but it does you know model view controller. It does delegation. It does singleton. It does observer patterns as well as other ones in there. And then you know it moves on to more um, advanced ones model view of view model patterns, you know, um, that we all talked about facade patterns, prototype patterns, adapter pattern, iterator patterns, factory patterns, you know, and then there's an advanced section as well. Um, so if you can work through, uh, the stuff, I mean, again, it's very algorithm centered. So, I mean, if you haven't done these, these are the kind of things that are going to come up when you go looking for a job per se, or you get challenged by a whiteboard, or you just want to understand how these patterns work. This is kind of a very, really kind of useful book from that perspective, right? Um, and again, it's written sort of in that same, you know, style that, uh, that they, they write at Runner, right? like where it's, you know, it's accessible, like I think, like you said before, right? You know, the analogies kind of make sense and uh, they're, they're approachable, right? So, yeah. Yes.
1: I mean, so I'll, I'll give two sort of as, as best I can concrete examples um, of how I ended up using this bit of literature and work, right? So I identified a case where I felt pretty, like in my gut, told me, hmm, I think this could be a command pattern. And rather than then sort of just going off of what I, you know, randomly remember of, you know, the pros and cons of that. I just went to go read the like five to six pages in the literature for the, for that design period. Like, let me just make sure I I, I covered all the cases of what that's supposed to be. Yep. That's pretty much what I expected. I'm going to move forward with this. The other thing that I did within the last week or so was, hmm, this other thing seems like maybe a builder might be appropriate. And I read the builder and I said, hmm, it's kind of nice, but that's a little too much horsepower for the need that I have right now. But I've got a way that I can get myself sort of part way there and I ended up using a, a totally different book uh, also from the 1990s looks like it's copyright 1999 uh refactoring improving the design of existing code that was mm-hmm. helpful again it's not like the sort of book that I would read cover to cover as more of a reference sort of thing of like hey you know what I don't know like if you were like a like an architect uh oh uh what should I use for your um I don't know let me see what the rules are around like the the thickness of the steel gauge that we should use when we're gonna build this tension bridge right like that's sort of how I use it you're, you're not gonna pull out all the time. You shouldn't be like, oh, I'm going to use like every pattern possible because that's not what you want to do. You, you just want to be aware of like, you know what? I don't, I don't need to reinvent the wheel here. There, there's probably something off the shelf that I can use. Mm, yeah,
0: yeah, it's cool. I've, I've cracked the book on on the, the printed book and um, started going through it, and I, sk- I skimmed through the uh, the uh, design pattern or the yeah, design pattern one. So yeah, cool. Any other questions about it? It's a great conference. What can I say? Good time was
1: had by all. <laughs> yeah, I think it's pretty cool that they do this post mortem uh, blog post. Yeah. Out and about, so um, of course I, I look at the what went well. Um, my eyes sort of gaze down to the what could be improved. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah interesting that they, they talked about that. It's, it's pretty easy to just talk about what went well, and, and listening to what could be improved is, is pretty good.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of people want um, want uh, another day. <laughs> uh, that seems to be pretty pretty common. Uh, what? Yeah, this no no auto complete was uh, was a, a problem because you know the the uh, instructors had their screens up on. Um, um, you know, they're in presenter mode, so the fonts are huge and that kind of stuff. And, and the autocomplete get, kept, you know, jumping in the way and, and blocking what the, the instructor was typing, so that was a bit challenging, I think, for some people. But, um, you know, as a, at the same time as you're going through the thing, you also have the PDF of the of the, the lecture notes and the slides and stuff like that. So, if you missed something that was being typed on the screen, you could always just go through the PDF and sort of follow along, or even be a little bit in advance in some cases if you wanted to, to sort of go through. But, uh, you know, um, and Again, it's it's an un, unlike any other experience. If you're if you're in a sort of learning mode, you know, to have you know, these uh, experts talking their way through it, right? So um, Renee Cashew from um, Alatsin was there, and he, his piece was on um, advanced unidirectional architecture, and that was a very heavy uh, heavy um, workshop. Um, but yeah, like you know, he gives you the the his his um, playground files are, are you know extremely well documented. So as you go through, you can sort of re- you can read. What he's saying about each each particular part of it, you know, and, and one of the playgrounds he has is like a complete running application. So uh, as he builds towards the the finished piece, you can you can either you know go through it with him or or just jump to the end and see how the whole thing's put together, sort of thing, right? So it was really kind of cool to see how uh, how you would build a sort of really advanced um, application that way, right?
1: Right, right. Have, have we talked at all about the app architecture book from Objective C. io? Uh, no, no, I don't think so. So. Okay, so that's that's another one that I'm interested in uh, Objective C from uh, Chris Eidhoff, Matt Gallagher, Florian Kugler. Right, uh, yeah. You're probably familiar with their blog posts or their uh, like videos where they're like two of them discussing some sort of you know software problem. Could be Swift, could be you know, some sort of design problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've got this book that is not available yet. Or, I mean, it's it's available in, in like preview mode, but it's not complete yet. It's coming out. Uh, well, they aim to finish it in April 2018, so they, they still got a few more weeks uh, where they discuss a, um, like six different application architectures that they use to compare and contrast when building the same app, right? So my understanding is they will show you not only like, you know, how this particular architecture works, like model view controller, uh, MVVM, you know, that sort of thing. But they'll also rebuild the same app using those different architectures to sort of give you the sense of like, well, what are the different trade-offs of these, right? right where are, cool, where are the, the gains and where are the pains? Right, yeah. So it it's, looks like they have an ebook and some videos available here um, if i end up picking this up i'll probably wait until it's complete but if you're you know, looking to get uh, the preview action you can get on that now
0: sure cool cool um
1: all right um,
0: so tim so maybe you on. should
2: suggest to ray to uh, have a west coast uh, version of of the <laughs> next
0: year <laughs> Well, let's let's explain why it's in Virginia <laughs> first of all because uh, he so actually he lives, lives in Virginia uh, at yeah, least yeah. he lives about two hours away, so yeah, that's, yeah I think that's probably the main reason why it's over there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you know I, I, who knows I mean um, it seems to be pretty popular. it sells out quick, right? so uh, who knows maybe maybe there will be. but they, you know these guys put a lot of work into into each of the, the things they, I mean they start the idea session in you know sometime in the fall and then they work their way through it and they, they practice 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 right up to the you know the next couple of um, months just or weeks before right so yeah they put a ton of work into it the, i watch these guys on slack and i'm just like you know you know it, it mm-hmm. takes a ton of time mm-hmm. and it's you know teams and like you know tech editors are, are, are second to none kind of thing right so the ones that work on the projects and then they had one guy wrangling the whole thing and he did a real good job um his name is eric kerber um yeah yeah sorry i was gonna say there's also a hackathon that they or hack night that they did and so they had some student uh, i think the students actually won the best app, right? Which is kind of cool. The ones that had the student scholarship, right? Um, yeah, so they had a number of... They had like... Uh, so IBM was there. So um, uh, David Okun was talking about... Um, and you guys know him, right? You've run into him on the West Coast, the left coast? Yeah, um, David Okun from IBM. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so they had a, they had an award for the best use of Ketura. There was, um, I think Firebase was there. So they had the best Firebase app and then they had the best app overall. And I think the students won that one, so... Yeah, it's cool, and of course, you know they had the workshops with those guys too uh, as well. Um, yeah, they did clean architecture. Oh, there was a couple of Android. Uh, that's the other thing too. Android um, Kotlin uh, sessions as well. And unfortunately, my computer was not being cooperative, so I had to jump out and go to another session. But uh, so I wasn't able to attend that one. But I was looking forward to that. But I'll, you know, of course, I got the materials, so I can go back through it again on my own. So I think, I think, you know, in future years they'll have uh, more, more uh, Android uh, stuff as well for those of you driving at home who want to do Android. Right, but anyway, let's. Uh,
1: should we move on to our picks? Are we ready for that? Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So, Jaime, you got a pick here? Yes, it's a blog post by the folks at uh, AppCoda, and it covers understanding Git version control and how to use that in Xcode nine, which mm. I found interesting. I'll, I'll be honest, I haven't actually. Seen stepped through this and tried it out myself. I um, mentioned on the show before, I use a lot of the command line stuff. I use Git Tower, which we mentioned was in public beta for version 3. Mm-hmm. Um, but Xcode comes with visual stuff that you can use. And they, they go through a, a small example, just looking at the screenshots and, and sort of browsing through, that shows how you can use the version control stuff to create branches, you know, yeah. compare differences between that. That looks pretty helpful because I, I actually haven't used, really, really used Xcode's internal tools for Git. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I need to see what they have to offer.
0: Well, Mark and I have been nice. using their Git for a while. It's a good article here, too. Um, one thing that's nice in the latest version, I think Xcode 9 was the first version where they added the ability to, if you hadn't started your project with Git, you used to have to go and quit Xcode and go and do a Git in it and do an initial commit um, and then open up Xcode and, and it would recognize the Git there. But uh, now you can actually create start a repository while you're in an active project and, and then start branching off from there, too. So um, I, I work a little bit in, in uh when I'm working on my own projects, I work with Xcode's um, implementation and very rarely to go to the command line for it. I think it's kind of, it's almost caught up to doing command command line stuff. And
2: Yeah. So I, I like the Xcode implementation, especially the new stuff that they put into Xcode 11, where you can look at all your branches and see what the commits were for for any given branch. That's a real nice feature uh, directly inside yeah. Xcode. Uh, but I do have to say that uh, Xcode, it's not perfect uh, for for it, it does screw things up every once in a while. You got to be kind of careful. Uh, there, there are times when you'll change a branch and it won't Xcode won't catch all the, the changes somehow. And oh, really? Uh, yeah, it'll mark a lot of stuff as errors, and and pretty much the only way you can get rid of them is to close the project and reopen the project. Even just building. The, the strange thing in this particular case is you can you can build and it and it runs. It's fine. It builds fine. It runs, but it's still showing those errors. In the in the uh, in the error list in the left hand column, and the only way to get rid of them is to is to close it down and start again. So there there definitely are issues with Xcode. It's not perfect for merging too. It's it's uh, merging things like storyboards. Well, I mean that's always a problem. But uh, that's you know it would be really nice if if Apple had a a visual storyboard merging tool. (laughs) That would Mm. be awesome. Right? Yeah. But uh, that's yeah. I'm not holding my breath for that one. Uh, trick to to merging storyboards if if anyone has run into this and and hasn't figured it out yet is it won't let you open the storyboard because it's got the you know the merge conflict lines in in the the text file the xml file but you can open it as a text file and find them in there and then edit it and then and then once you've got it fixed uh you can open it up as an actual storyboard again yeah we go
0: through that all the time at uh in our place so we 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 use source tree for most of our most of our people do um and then, yeah, if you, you run into it, you open it up in Sublime Edit or BB Edit
2: or something, yep. and fix it. And, and the other, the, the big things you can't do with with Xcode yet are, well, there's several actually, but you can't cherry pick, you can't uh, rebase. And you can't uh, do any kind of revert or re- or reset, as far as I can tell. Yeah, so if you ever need so. to do any of those things, you need to go back to the command line. But yeah. I use it as much <laughs> for for everything else. I, I use it as much as I possibly can.
0: Yeah, yeah, same here. Yep. I think I, I use a combination. Like I said, I, I use either SourceTree and Xcode together, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, SourceTree at work. Um, when I'm working on my own stuff at home, I use both combination. Um, but like you know, as Tommy was explaining, uh with his Git Tower, I use SourceTree the same way because it gives me a
1: visual look at what's going on so
0: mm-hmm. uh-huh.
1: yeah yeah and I've gotten kind of used to the edge cases of where the visual tools fall down I'd be very curious to see what Xcode itself does where it's Git version tool the, historically the problems I've had with visual Git clients like smart Git and Git Tower and probably SourceTree but nothing really jumps out at me is they tend to lie when it comes to weirdo things like <laughs> uh, core data and it's sort of like mm. subfolder structure. Yep. Yeah. structure um, asset catalog cause it Mm, problems as well as, um, Probably the project file. I'm kind of remember, but basically things where like, whoops, there's like a hidden dot folder somewhere, and the command line always knows. It never fails. Uh, the Visual Tools may or may not catch that, so yeah. I'm hopeful that, yeah. that Xcode will know about that. It's like, for heaven's sakes, you know about core data. Just, just show me that that thing changed,
2: so I can check it in. Common, a common bug that's been around for years now. Uh, and if you uh, haven't been burned by it, you will eventually. Uh, if you ever in in an asset catalog try to change. The name of an asset, so not the actual file names, but the actual you know the label name that you use of an asset. Change a, just a capitalization of any character, but but the rest of the name is the same. It will Git will not recognize that you've made the change through if you do it through Rex code. Oh really? Yeah. Hmm. Oh, interesting yeah. interesting. yeah. So it will cause all. All uh, sorts of trouble if you're not careful about it. And it goes back to, I mean, this is, this is kind of an old thing is that, is that the Mac is, is case insensitive. Right. Yeah. But Git is not case insensitive.
0: Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. Yeah. That's interesting. It explains a lot because we've had, and I think Simulator isn't as well. Or is Simulator or the actual iOS devices aren't? Because we've, we've been burned by that before where the you know, the asset gets named with lowercase and it's being yep. called by an uppercase in, in the file and yep. runs fine in the Simulator but doesn't run fine on the device. So Yeah, that's right.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Seen that one. We learned that one early, yeah. Yep. Yeah, the pro tip is you want to rename something, don't. Delete that, <laughs> add it back in as a new one and get it correct. <laughs> or rename it to I've never something been
2: crazy, and then rename it back with the with the corrected uh, uh, capitalization. If you if you want to do it that way, hmm. right.
0: It sounds like you have to do a
2: commit in between, though.
0: No, you don't. You don't necessarily
2: have to do a commit in between if you. Change- well, I
0: mean, if you're doing if you're doing a trick, right? You have to delete it and update. No, to oh, get-
2: no, you don't. You don't actually don't have to commit it. You can if you delete it, it'll mark the old one as deleted, and then you add the new one, it'll mark it, mark it, mark it as added. So that that works, okay.
1: Oh, okay, okay, yeah, yeah. And you might even get lucky that Git might recognize what you're doing and say, "Oh, that's a move." So right, you'll retain your history there, and you don't have to do the Git move command to to patch that up. Right. Okay. Cool. All
0: right. Well, I've got here down on my pick. I've got Control Option Command G, and one of the uh, workshops we had at RW DevCon was by Andy Abusik, and it was um, test driven development. But during the talk, he also uh, interjected with a few of his keyboard commands that he likes, and the one I particularly liked was this one: c- Control Option Command G. So if you're in the middle of running a test, uh, you know you're, you you want to you know you click that little diamond thing in in the interface to run that test, right? That individual test but you can also hold down control option command g and that will run that particular test so, like it'll run the last test you just ran right so mm-hmm. if you go back to the file and you're working in your in your your file that's like your your main project and you want to run that same so you go in you make some updates uh, hit this command and it'll run that test again so you don't have to go back to the test to run it which is kind of cool right um, also if you're in the middle of editing it uh, or editing a, um, a test you can do com- control option option command U and it'll run that test. And then, of course, then it sticks it into the memory and then you can run the command control option command G again. So it was super handy to do that. Really sped up the work because, you know, you write the test, you know, we're using test-driven development. So you write the test to fail, then you go write the cl- the method that your class or whatever it is you're testing. And then you come back and, you know, you run the test again or you update the test to make it pass, right? Um, but, you know, so when we were working in on the project, we actually just, you know, you go back to the class, Make the updates, make the changes you need to do, and then run the test again with a little quick kill command. So the keyboard commands in this particular case were super, super helpful. So Eddie's uh, expression was: "The test is green, code is clean."
1: So oh, yeah. somebody was a Ghostbusters 1984. Yeah,
0: player. yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> That's what he said. Yeah, yeah. He also mentioned something else that I had never heard before: a Pono, a plain old, plain old NS object.
1: Ever heard of that one, Pono? I, ha- I haven't heard that one. It, it, it Rhymes kind of funny, so it, it, it took me back when I heard it. Um, I've heard of Pojo for yeah, plain POJO. Old Java object, yeah, yeah. Same Poco idea. for plain old uh, C sharp object. I've never heard it used for NS object, so that's that's an interesting one. Yeah, Today Pono. I learned that one. Pono, yeah, I made a note made a note of that one too.
0: Yeah, so cool.
1: Yeah, th- I, I would definitely give a thumbs up plus one to those keyboard commands because, uh, as you mentioned, the ability to rerun the tests um, yeah, from yeah. wherever you are. I mean, sometimes you can just use the assistant editor. But I've definitely been in cases where, oh, this is like in the base class or uh, this isn't actually related to, you know, the problem isn't in the thing I'm looking at. It's in one of its, you know, companion objects or something. And sure. being able to run that wherever you are is great because you don't have to like just navigate back to click the little diamond. And I really do like using the the other one you mentioned, the control option command U, uh-huh. because you can control more or less the granularity of tests. It could be singular test if you have yeah. your cursor in that that one like test blah 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 or it could be that whole suite if you have you know 20 tests in that same xc test case yeah just put your cursor in the right spot and it'll run all of them so you can check whatever you want uh, do whatever meets your particular needs
0: right right yeah Cool. Uh, oh, one little bonus thing here, which I forgot to mention. So one of the, there were, I mean, the inspiration talks were great and, and I could probably talk about each one for at length, but one that was of particular interest to this podcast was Philip Shoemaker, who used to be the original guy behind the app store, right? So he gave us 10 lessons learned. Um, he was hired in 2009. He was complaining to Apple about the whole process in 2008 about get, trying to get an app into the app store and uh, so much so that they said, okay, well, come and work for us and finish. It right, um, so he went through. I'm going to run through these real quick, but you know, um, he talked about some of the some of the tricks that people would do to try and um, trick the the app store. He was saying that apps generally get about 13 minutes for new apps and about six minutes for an update, if in terms of how much time the reviewer spends on it. Now, there, a lot of things are automated now, so that, that that helps. But initially, they were doing them all by hand, so that's why it took a long, long time for developers things to get through um some of the things that people did in terms of like, one of the points he made was about the, uh, uh what number eight was, you know, it, where there's money, there's fraud and money laundering. So they had a lot of issues with that kind of stuff, um, in, in apps, uh, in cases. And they, they figured those ones out, but he was talking about the developers or wily. It was number nine takeaway. Um, like for instance, have you guys heard of 18X? Do you know what that is? 18.X. I have not. No. So 18, is a- 18.X is the beginning of Apple's uh, IP address. Oh. Right. So people would write into their apps to look for eighteen X. So you mentioned you mentioned there was some sort of driving service app um that would uh present the app in one way um and then it would uh you know, so if it was coming if the request was coming out of Cupertino it would behave in one way, but if it was anywhere else it <laughs> would do something different, right? Uh, some people actually wrote functions called in underscore Cupertino uh, and they would basically, you know, run the app one way if it was it was inside of Apple. Um, what else did he give us Somebody, it was some really good interesting a- angles on on what people would do like one of the things he, could, he said talked about doing was the fake reviews right so you know how it's it's against the rules to to have fake reviews and you have those those review farms and stuff like that he said sometimes there have been some cases where instead of reviewing your writing review fake reviews for your own app you'd write fake reviews for your competitors' app right so that they would get caught for doing that and they, they're like what i didn't do this kind of thing and and uh, get them out of your way if you will right So uh, lots of interesting stories coming out of uh, things that developers would do. A lot of bait and switch where the app would do one thing. um, What was the one example he gave? It was uh, Hot Rods, right? Um, There was an app called Hot Rods where basically, you know, when it went through the review process, it was all, you know, web-driven content that was being put into this app. And it was, you know, Hot Rods, like, you know, souped up cars and stuff like that, right? Um, But when the app actually gone to the app store, they switched the the content that went in there and they were like, you know, mail anatomy if you can imagine right yeah or the hot rods right anyway it,
1: it, it's interesting the the stats on how much review time people had because it would sort of match, match up notionally with what i've seen historically because you know you have to give the apple reviewers like a test account right if, if you have yeah a, yeah a, a, an app that requires login and you can kind of tell it's like mm, yeah we well, can just look at server logs when did they log in when did they stop using activity and yeah you know, less than half an hour for sure and it always made me wonder it's like so it Went into review at seven and got out of review at eight. They stopped using it before eight, you know, before seven thirty. What was the rest of the time? <laughs> Were they filling a document? Were they getting some donuts? What was what was happening there? I, I really would have loved to have asked that asked yeah. that individual that question. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, he was, was saying that like you know, initially they went from seven hundred reviews a week to eighty thousand reviews a week as of twenty sixteen when he left Apple. So quite a, quite a growth in terms of a uh, number of things, right?
1: Yes, that is an insane amount a scale
0: yeah, so there was a, it was an interesting interesting talk. It'll be interesting to see, see if that one comes out on uh, video. But I'm pretty sure f- um, Philip is available for house parties and uh, <laughs> <laughs> other things. If you want some entertaining uh, lecturing, right? So, yeah. Daniel Steinberg was there. He did a really interesting uh, talk. Uh, he told a couple of really bad uh, card tricks. And one of them actually was turned out to be an explanation of um, pass-by-value and pass-by-reference, right? So we had all these guys holding cards and other people, you know, holding on to them. Is because they were holding references to them, kind of thing. By analogy, right? So it's good, good talk. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, uh, like a, like a Penn and Teller trick, but pretty like, much, with yeah. Dad yeah. jokes, big, big giant cars, right? Yeah. Right. So he'd had one he had one guy who was like immutable he was a struct right so he had the card in his hand and if he wanted to if he wanted to uh, uh, change him he had to get rid of the guy and get another guy <laughs> and give him a card <laughs> yeah so it was, it was a really interesting I, I wish I could remember the the, the, the card trick itself but yeah it's pretty interesting but anyway that's uh, that's yeah that's my pick uh, the keyboard command and some follow-up from our wdfcon
2: sorry what does that keyboard command do
0: <laughs> <laughs> well you you need it now?
2: <laughs> no, I, I, I actually I was busy slacking and I missed that, but yeah. I was wondering what that keyboard command does. Oh, uh,
0: control option command u or c- control option command g runs the last test you just ran. Oh, okay. Okay. From anywhere. So Paired, if you yeah. It, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Paired up with control option command u, which will run uh, right. a particular test, could be a whole test suite, like an XE test case or it could be just a singular test function within a test case. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. And command shift u runs
1: all the tests, right? Doesn't it? Uh, command y- or command you? Command no, on shift alt you. Tests. I don't command know what shift command, sh- I command shift you. you. Ooh, that's a good question. I don't know what's basic and what's in our own particular setup. Yeah. Anyway, mm.
0: anyway, that's all I got for this week. So, hey, Hummet, if people want to find you on the where wherever they look. I'm on Twitter as at dev with a hair. All right. Mark, if you want to get a hold of you, how, other Mark than Slack, how will they get a
2: <laughs> Other
0: than Slack, how will they get a hold of you? Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, and my name is Timitra, T I M M I T R A, on the Twitter machine is the best way to get my attention. And until next week, we will say bye-bye. Bye-bye. bye bye Goodbye.
1: bye that was another MTJC episode for the History Books. I'm sometimes host and friend of the show, Greg Heo. If you want to find out more about the podcast or see the episode show notes, visit the More Than Just Code website at mtjc.fm. You can get in touch with us on the website or follow us on Twitter at mtjc If you have questions or feedback, send us a tweet with the hashtag AskMTJC. If you like the show, please consider writing a review on iTunes, recommending us to a friend, or pledging any amount at patreon.com slash mtjc. You can find details on how to help us out on our website. That's mtjc.fm slash sponsor us. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Interesting uh, politically. I've also watched in dismay and amusement as the uh, the Facebook Senate inquiry has gone on.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. I haven't been able to catch most of that, but I've caught some of the highlights, you know, on the news and stuff like that. But uh, interesting stuff. What have you got for us highlight highlight wise?
1: It's bad from every from every angle. I mean, uh, Facebook and Zuckerberg actually come out of it reasonably well because the senators were clearly not prepared adequately to handle this sort of topic. So, they asked him really hmm. dumb questions, or they were just doing grandstanding or some combination thereof. Um,
2: yeah, one, one of the senators asked him, So, if you don't charge for your service, how does your company make money? Right. And Zuckerberg just pauses and says, We sell ads. Yeah. And that's the whole reason he's there, right? Is because of the ads that he's, that he's right. To oh, is that <laughs> right? Oh. He's selling ads to Russians, right? And so, right. Oh, okay. That's the whole source of the whole thing.
1: Yeah. Right? I think um, some other ones that were in the, the grandstanding, area where uh, ted cruz basically trying to weasel his way into getting zuckerberg on the record to say that facebook was basically um censoring conservatives oh, which really? obviously obviously they're not going to say regardless of whatever the truth of the matter is but he was that's all he was trying to do he was like trying to get it from every angle he could and zuck stayed the Zuckerbot bot and stayed uh, cool calm and collected Zuckerbot. bot yeah <laughs> that's what i started calling it because he looks so bad i don't know if it's harsh lighting where he's not eating well but this is not zuckerberg <laughs> i'm used to seeing at you know facebook f8 conference right like that's so like i mean this goes off into a uh, spot type of material but it's like mm-hmm. you know victor von doom also known as dr doom for the fantastic four well known for having doom bots that would act as if they were dr doom except oh, really? when they were yeah. in his presence so the, the fantastic four would always catch him like oh it's just a robot that's what it felt like here like it was a Westworld styled host that was almost but not quite like zuckerberg yeah Pretty scary. Yeah. yeah. The other yeah, uh, grandstanding one was, uh, unfortunately, from my own home or not home state, but you know, current resident state, uh, mm-hmm. Maria Cantwell, senator was like, so, Palantir, some would call them, Stanford Analytica. Palantir. <laughs> yeah, he's yeah. yeah, like, pause. And was like, wouldn't you agree? It's like, you didn't ask him a question. <laughs> you, did, you, you didn't even raise, you didn't even have the rising pitch at the end that might make it seem like a question. Of course, the Zuckerberg didn't respond. You didn't ask it a question.
2: Wait, who asked him that?
1: That was Maria Cantwell. Oh, okay. Wow. Crazy. Yeah, Or the other guy, I, I don't remember which senator it was, like, all right, so you know, who are your competitors? And they don't really have a great specific one, so Mark tried to go through, like, the litany of potential ones, uh, depending on which aspect of Facebook you're talking about. And this senator cuts him off, like, no, 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 look, like, if I got a problem with a Ford, I can just go buy a Chevy, you know? It's like, well, <laughs> it's not that simple. There is nothing in the world even remotely like Facebook.
2: Well, that's what, uh, that's what they were trying to trap them into saying right because because then they get them on monopoly issues oh really Uh, yeah but uh, it doesn't even um, apply in the
1: united states right like given the way that we've handled monopoly is different than the europeans europeans would be like oh we we do it for competition and in the united states we do it based on harm to consumers which is the opposite here right like they're trying to get facebook to charge money instead of using ads like if you can't, if they couldn't decide to prosecute Google, there's zero chance they could decide to prosecute Facebook. It would not make sense. I
2: don't know. I think they're looking for a scapegoat. Oh, definitely. Definitely. And, and you know, I, I don't think Facebook has clean hands in all this. Uh, oh, definitely not. So, you know, so I, I wouldn't be unhappy to see Facebook face some consequences for all this. But the problem is Congress is so is going to be so ham handed that whatever they do, it's going to cause problems for the tech industry as a whole. Yeah, right. That's, that's yeah. the problem. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Yeah, I think the only one that could even be vaguely good for the industry would be to break up Facebook itself, because <laughs> everything else they would try to do to regulate would just strengthen its grip by making it more difficult for competitors to get to the same spot.
0: Yeah. Well, what does breaking up Facebook accomplish? How does What does that look like?
1: Baby uh, Bell style, like AT&T, stuff that was proposed for Microsoft. It's-
2: so they might like split off Instagram and split off oh, WhatsApp right, yeah. into separate companies.
1: Hmm. Yeah, maybe start slicing up all right, Facebook Messenger is its own Thing, yeah. Facebook login or the news feed might be their own thing. Um, I don't know. It, it it's so weird because it's a singular product. It's it's not like when they were talking about Microsoft, like, all right, well, let's keep this browser thing separate from Windows. Let's like keep Windows separate from Office. This would be like splitting up Microsoft Word itself, which would be really hard. Oh, you you can type words, but you can't spell check them, or something yeah. really yeah. weird and awkward.
0: Yeah, it's kind of funny. I look at it like a, like it's a you know it's a startup essentially that that grew. And grew and grew and grew and grew. And never, I don't know if it ever really had any decent governance. Do they have a board of directors at Facebook? Yes, they, they must, do. They Part must. They must now, right? To. Yeah. So yeah. But
2: so. but the problem is that. Uh Google does this too, actually, uh, that, that the investors have been so sheepish, <laughs> complacent that, right. that, uh, you know, Zuckerberg just has complete control over, over the, uh, the number of shares. So he's, just, he's still 60% owner of, of, uh, right. right. Yeah. company. I mean, I, it's a little bit different than Google. Google has many owners, but they don't have voting rights, which is crazy in, in the Facebook case. It's, I believe that there are, well, there may or may not be voting rights but but regardless you know zuckerberg still has a 60 percent ownership so it doesn't matter if anybody else has voting rights because whatever he wants just happens so, sure yeah so the board of directors he i think he's also the chairman of the board of the directors too ah uh, right so, yeah. if well, so the chairman of the board and the ceo then pretty much and 60 percent owner then pretty much nothing anyone can do except i, I do
0: get that those notifications saying that you know there's bo- voting for the board or whatever from facebook just like i do from apple right yeah so does that mean that they have voting rights or some style of voting rights
2: well voting for board members is a little bit different uh potentially a little bit different it depends on the you know bylaws it depends on how the company's set up it it may mean though that there are yeah that there are the 40 the other 40 percent that zuckerberg does not are also voting shares so everybody gets a vote it's just zuckerberg has 60 percent of the vote from yeah right yeah it doesn't matter what your vote means yeah
0: i saw a report on the news today talking about how uh, you know as well as talking about the hearings but also talking about how the the stock went down and then back up again and and just by going up that little bit, Zuckerberg ended up with, with three billion dollars or something like that. Yeah, um, based on the increase, you know, notwithstanding the fact that he would have lost that the day in the days preceding, right? Well, oh, he
2: did. He did lose a ton of money. Yeah, yeah. It went down.
0: Yeah, well, it's it's like an episode of Silicon Valley, really, you know? Yeah, it um, kind of is. Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. Well, Realized Hooli, Hooli is, was clearly modeled after Google. but uh, Oh, yeah, yeah. But um, uh, actually, I'm not sure if there is a Facebook analog on Hooli, on uh, Silicon Valley, a, a direct one at least. I mean, I'm sure there's parts of it in, mixed in with Hooli. Yeah,
0: I was just thinking on the way to work today that they're going to have to do like the, the social network part two or... You know, the Empire Strikes Back, or something. You know, the rise
2: and fall <laughs> of, of the Facebook Empire.
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, you know, it's funny because when you look at it in, in in context of what they're talking about, it has actually grown quite a bit, right? Um, in terms of in terms of where you know how how it's grown, how how the company's grown, and how much you know how many members it has, and you know, its kind of influence and that kind of stuff, right?
2: So, oh yeah, it's grown in, insanely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. it's ridiculous. Yeah, it's crazy. So it wasn't the it wasn't the uh, NSA filter as across the border that that was causing the problem.
0: then. NSA filter, national security filter.
2: <laughs> we were all in the same
0: country, so why would it matter?
2: Oh, oh right. because oh, maybe because they were uh, monitoring you because you were a, a ferner. Well, you ferner. Were a in the country. <laughs> yeah, Tim, you
1: were you were complaining about being in the United States and not being able to view some sort of video because they clearly noticed that yeah, you were Canadian. Like,
0: what, but, what is up with that? What was I that? I have no idea. I don't know. I, for some, I was I was sitting in the air. Airport at um on my way out and there was some video oh from Saturday Night Live. It was uh the Black Jeopardy skit that they did, right? And uh uh-huh. So I went to play that and so so NBC blocks um, I can't watch NBC here in Canada like because either NBC blocks it or CRTC blocks it right So I'm sitting in the airport in Reagan Airport and I click on the link and it says you can't watch this because it's not available in your country and I'm like I'm in the frickin' United States of America you know so
1: I mean, I mean how did, did you I, what I didn't ask is was your website like snl.ca or something like
0: No no it was just, it was just a like a, it was just a regular old, uh, you know, NBC link off of YouTube, right? I think maybe they look at the carrier on the on the device. Could that be? Like, I can't think of any. Of th- I mean, I was using an IP, an American but IP. How do right? you
2: know it wasn't something that isn't viewable in America? There's plenty of. It stuff, was something.
0: It? It, no, no, this is this is totally viewable in America. So I jumped. I think I jumped on the uh, the Reagan a um, uh, Wi-Fi or yeah or turn turn on Tunnel Bear. I can't remember which one, but I, w- I was able to watch it after a few minutes after I figured that out. But oh, I, okay. but I, it, it just it just struck me weird that so through
2: your cellular network you were not able to but through your through wi-fi yeah yeah i I think okay it probably has to do with something about the fact that you're roaming or something like that it knows yeah it
0: must recognize that i'm in a canadian inside american soil yeah yeah like you said mark the nsa is monitoring me (laughs) they're monitoring everything that's right yeah that's right
1: all right. So- <laughs> Today's episode brought to you by Slack. Slack. <laughs> Connecting the world one person at a time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Annoying, them, annoying the world one person at a time.
0: Yeah yeah bunch of, bunch of randoms <laughs>
1: <laughs> remember when everybody was so obsessed with uh, email inbox zero where you didn't have any mm-hmm. you know emails that needed to be triaged or looked at I think around the same time people got really excited it was like oh yeah slack helps me you know with email inbox zero oh, and really? now people yeah, have realized like wait a minute worse. yeah now I have too many slacks I'm in too many darn slacks as a yeah. whole and then too many channels within each individual slack and I can't find anything because search may not be good and it's not exactly conducive to like a documentation structure yeah
0: yeah it can be, it's, it's funny how, how, um, interesting it, you know, how disruptive this stuff gets. Right. And, uh, and you would think you couldn't get things worked work on, but when I'm glad I learned a few years ago that you just have to have to remain focused and, and tune out, you know, like just because you get an email in doesn't mean you have to deal with it right away. And the same thing with Slack, right?
1: Yeah. I probably need to do a better job of that personally. I had a, a like a weirdly productive day and it was by complete accident. You know, I, I had my normal day in the morning and then, Oh, I'm good gonna go meet a friend for lunch and that turned into like a two or three hour lunch wow i said oh no like i'm gonna have to make up all this time (laughs) to do the things i actually needed to do so i was like well it's five let me let me eat some uh some dinner you know and between 8 p.m and 11 p.m i was like holy smokes like i banged out a lot of code what happened oh is it because there's literally nobody on slack right now (laughs) because all the normal (laughs) people did you know nine to five it's true yeah Mm -hmm.
2: yeah i get the most work done if i go into the office a little bit early because i I
0: forgot you guys are both on, both? well, mine, you go into work every day, right, Mark? But, uh, and Jaime, you're doing the remote thing, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, and um, so, um, you know, most of us are on, the, or at least on my team, are on Pacific time. You've got you know, one person who's over there in central time, and suddenly a couple of people who are in eastern time, so that can be a little challenge. Like, oh, I need to have, like, core hours so I can get some info to them, and they sort of run at a little bit of an advantage because they're, you know, starting at 6 a.m. Pacific because it's 9 a.m. there, and Mm-hmm. i bet you they're they're pretty um i don't know it, it, you kind of have like heads down time by accident right you're not like if somebody does wake up like i have woken up early like, oh let me ping somebody because I, I know they're they're up on the east coast maybe i should do that and shift my hours a little bit so i can get some quiet time either early in the morning or uh, later at night mm. also there i noticed there was less contention on the jenkins box <laughs> my pr was the only one it was building so i had the entire death star battle station imac pro churning away on my uh, my Swift files. So you have one Jenkins box? There are multiple, but the mobile team has one that generally meets uh, okay. the needs of, of iOS and Android. It, it gets right. a little rough on uh, code freeze day when everybody's trying to scramble to get their PRs in.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So does so it have one slave on that box or...
1: I don't know the full setup because I'm not involved with that team, but um, I think some of the Android stuff is farmed out because the Android tool set runs on anything, whereas the Mac stuff, uh, sorry, the iOS stuff has to run on a Mac. Right. okay. So I know our stuff is always on the Pro itself. It's not farmed out to another box.
0: How big is your team, Mark asked?
1: Yeah. Split roughly down the middle between iOS and Android. Yeah.
2: Hmm.
0: Yeah. Maybe you should read the Ray Winter Lookbook so you know what they've read. (laughs) (laughs) You do the
2: tests. Uh, Oh, yeah. Oh, are there tests? You mean, mean are there?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean the, the the algorithm book is written for interviews, right? Oh, so, I see. I see. Yeah, 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 yeah. As well as as well as uh, you know for education, but yeah, yeah, they do mention interviews at the beginning.
1: It's getting to be the season for it changed obviously. It's getting to be the season for tech stuff. I got the um, the local invite to go to Google I/O extended in Kirkland, so not not the the big show in Mountain View. Um, so that's nice. I get to see what you know, spend some time see what the Google folks are, are doing. And the interesting thing to me, I, I mentioned it in Slack, is that it's either a huge coincidence that their parking situation, maybe they're building some buildings, or man, they probably are clamping down on things after the YouTube thing. It was really surprising that you couldn't drive there. They were like, hey, we've got these lift codes, get free ride, but you can't park here on our campus.
2: Well, I know that parking at the Google campus here and Facebook campus here are just impossible. Uh, At Facebook, they have valet parking, actually. You drive up to the the parking lot and drop off your car and they park it somewhere.
1: Hmm. Yeah. And in in this case, the the Kirkland site is quite spacious and, Mm -hmm. and very, very accommodating when come stick parking hmm. um I was, I was a little bit surprised but it makes sense to me i'll probably end up parking at a parking ride kind of close and then just taking the lift in now that uh now that chris latner is bringing more swift stuff to the forefront at google kind of excited that maybe they'll announce something there too
0: are you going to google io
1: not the not the one in mountain view not the official one. Oh, not the one oh the big one that you pay money there? yeah i'm going to the one that's uh, uh co-broadcasting you know they'll they'll have it up on the big screens in their conference rooms and they'll give us swag and food and stuff hmm. Hanging around with the, the Google developer community, I'll probably wear my or my disgusting orange uh, Swift shirt, just because, just to let them know. Yeah, if anybody asks, I'd be like, "Hey, man, what about this TensorFlow and Swift stuff? That's Google too, right?" Just wave the wave the uh, wave the flag there. Hmm. Another thing I'm interested in is uh, I probably touched on it a little bit past uh, last episode is the Golang language. I want to start experimenting with that a little bit more, mm-hmm. um, just to try something different. It's back end, and I mean, I think Swift is pretty good, but sometimes yeah, I feel like uh, it's... Kotlin. Well, because I want something a little bit further away, both in terms of the shape of the languages, where I I, I know less about Kotlin and its yeah, whatever foibles it might have, but Swift sometimes feels like, man, it's just unnecessarily complicated in some spots. Yeah, And Go is like, there's like 10 words, here, use these. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's like the opposite of, like, we give you nothing, uh, keep it as basic as possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so i gonna try doing that from, uh, like, just like, Personal project is hacking around on stuff. No, nothing too serious, but just trying that sort of side of things. Mm-hmm. Backend dev, Go stuff probably leads naturally into Docker and Kubernetes if I can get around to that. And uh, the Google campus will be good to, to ask folks about resources and best ways to get into that. Well, mm-hmm. there's also a um, a Go conference that is coming up here in Seattle, July 30th. I want to say. Somewhere around there. It's a one-day thing. It's like a hundred bucks, so it's it's pretty cheap. So I'll probably end up attending that. Taking a day off. What is is that like a Monday? Yes, it is. July 3rd is a Monday. We'll see how that goes. They also have they also have a uh, an open call for proposals or call for papers. And they have like beginner topics too. I'm like, hmm, I wonder if I can hack something together in time for July. But as it is, I already, now to think about it, I really do have to go update my presentation that uh, that broke when the Watson API changed. i to fix that before I uh, go to Atlanta. But at least I was able to get the local Seattle XCoders folks. It got me on the schedule the week before that conference. So I'll, I'll have a, a test run uh, in front of a, a live audience. That'll be good. Two. Sounds good. Talk. Right. See you later. Later. Bye. Talk. Later. Bye. Bye. Talk